Hello world, it's Kevin Pascal here and you're welcome to the other episode of the Hinton Iran podcast. Happy New Year. It's my first episode for the year, so I'm quite excited about this one. I'm excited about or I'm excited for what's to come for the podcast this year and how it will grow. I hope it grows. I hope you guys listen, you share, you subscribe. You know, you talk about my podcast anywhere you have a chance to. So on this episode I talked to Bell Ndiba. I actually had this conversation last year. I talked to Bell Ndiba. She is um, the editor in chief of the African Vice magazine. She's also a digital marketer and the executive director of Obora Marketing. So we talked a lot about Africa. We talked about entrepreneurship in Africa, strategies and ways in which you could improve lives in Africa by, you know, education, moving poverty and Mainly, we try to focus on improving the African condition. We also talked about things like um, post-colonial hangover. It's a really nice episode. I really enjoyed it. She's a well-spoken person, and it's a conversation that really enlightened me about a few things. So, if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, please subscribe, also share, and tell people about my podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't forget to contact me on Instagram or Twitter at Hinted Neuron. And now, here's my conversation with Bell Niba. I'm here with Bell Niba. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, so I'll just give you like a minute or two to introduce yourself to my audience. Talk about what you do and what, what, what you do as a person and even in your own life or just at for work. All right. So I'm Bell Niba. I'm originally from Cameroon in West Africa, but I'm based in the United States right now. I am an entrepreneur. I have... Um, businesses of my own that I pursue. I'm also a mom of two amazing kids married to an amazing guy called Elvis. And um, in a nutshell, that's who I am. Maybe a little bit about my businesses. I have a media, a digital media brand uh, called African Vibes, mm-hmm. and um, which aims to um, celebrate contemporary African culture and promote uh, support from the diaspora for uh, African initiatives. And then I have a digital marketing agency as well. But in essence, that's that's me in the, you know, thousand yeah. feet, <laughs> you know, description. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So I, I don't know if this would be right as my first question, but something you said caught my interest. How is it like doing all these things you do and still being a mom? Oh boy. Sometimes I wonder myself, (laughs) but, um, my background is in systems and processes and I have a personal strong belief that, um, to be able to run, whether it's a successful business or even in life to be successful, You have to operate within systems and processes from a life perspective. We call them habits from a business perspective, your systems and processes. So I have quite a bit of automation, uh, quite a bit of systems and processes, even in how uh, my husband and I operate our home to try to make it manageable. Now, this does not mean that it doesn't get overwhelming sometimes because children are unpredictable. But it's not easy, but it's manageable. I've managed to build uh, around what I do, the things that I need, the foundation that I need to be able to make it happen. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Well, I, I think we would cut off on a quick tangent now because I'm interested in talking about entrepreneurship real quick before we talk about other things. But I, I think maybe I, maybe I want to get a small story out of you is how you how did you start your entrepreneurship journey or what was the first company you you ran well i would say <laughs> the first company i ran was not a company at all it was yeah. when i was quite young so i'm actually going to go that far back normally when i'm asked yeah. this question i start with african vibes which was one of my formal businesses but i'm going to go back to when i was much younger and um being in Nigeria, you might relate to this term primary school because in the U.S. they won't get it. That's yeah. like elementary school yeah. here. But I was in primary school and um, I remember in school I bought there was this little cans of chocolate that you could buy. And, you know, I noticed that 
you know, I had some friends, they'll buy it and they would sell it. And I thought, you know, I would, you know how kids are. You're like, can I just get a taste? Cause my yeah, parents didn't exactly. give me any serious allowance or if they gave it, it was very specific what they hoped you do with it. And my friends would refuse to share. So I decided, okay, it's time for me to go into business for myself. <laughs> and so I went and bought my first, you know, little can of chocolate, went to school. I, it was 10 francs in Cameroon money is scoop and business yeah. was good. I had a good return on my investment. But when I came back, you know, home, um, actually for the first round, that's not when I had the good, the first round I sold some, but I hadn't covered my cost. came home. My younger sister was like, you know, can I have some? And I said, no, she's like, okay, we'll be an IOU. I'll give you money when I have it. I was like, okay. So I gave her the first scoop. It was really good. She pretty much got so many scoops that she finished the thing. And <laughs> at this point, after finishing it, I'm like, okay, I need money for another can. But I hadn't raised enough from the sales at school. And she had taken an IOU where she had no way of paying me back. So that was first lesson. So I got my aunties, uncles come to give you money. I went back into business again. This time, lesson learned. One, you don't give money to people with no way for them to pay you back. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, no more, you know, business on credit. So this time around, I went and to school, sold my merchandise and made some good money and no more IOUs. Everybody paid up front. That was my first encounter in business. And I fell in love with the idea that I could invest a certain amount and at the, and then go sell from that product that I invested in and get more than what I had paid for the product, right? That really fascinated me. Unfortunately, we come from a society, and I see this with a lot of not just Africans. I've seen it in a lot of communities, heavily, heavily in our African communities, where because our parents are not terribly comfortable or familiar with entrepreneurship. And sometimes even when they are, they worry that it's not a reliable uh, way for their child to have to make a living. They discourage it. They, there's no easy avenue. We don't see a lot of examples. Now it's getting better. I mean, now I'm with more media outlets, more of us speaking out, more business people, people are seeing more and more of that from an African perspective. But growing up, it wasn't the norm. You would see the doctors, the lawyers, they really status quo definitions of success. So if you were saying, hey, I want to do business, it would be, have you lost your mind? And it would require family intervention and, and all of that. So that was my first really taste of what business was like. So my heart was always in business from that young age, but I didn't even know what I didn't know. It was now coming into the U.S., not even knowing that I had this entrepreneurial spirit. All I just knew was that I wanted to, to live life on my own terms. So coming to the U.S., the first real thing that pushed me to formal business was where you come to a country and everything you hear about you as a black person and as an African is bad. Everything on the news is about poverty. And I'm not saying that's not part of Africa's story. It is our story. Mm. There's a lot of difficult, challenging situations. We have conflict. We have all of that. But that's not our entire story. I mean, you're sitting there and you feel like these people are telling a story that is, it's not that it's not true, but it's just so skewed that you're struggling to even, you're questioning whether there's any good where you're coming from. And I struggled with that. And I kept thinking to myself, somebody has to fix this. Somebody has to make this right. Somebody has to balance this narrative. And then one day I just thought to myself, what if there's nobody to do it? I should be responsible. If I think it needs to get done, I might as well do it. Who am I waiting for? I'm the person that I'm waiting for. I might as well yeah. do it. I had never done anything in media. I had no idea what I was doing. But because I felt like it needed to be done, I jumped in and started a magazine, a print magazine for that matter that actually got carried. Now we don't do print anymore, but at the time it was in bookstores mm -hmm. and, you know, it, it went a huge distance uh, to my utmost surprise. But that was my, so I, I share this too, because I believe that first experience shaped my mind without me even realizing it. Uh, because for the longest time, I didn't quite, yes, I excelled in school. Yes, finding jobs for me was easy. I'd get there, I'd excel, but I never found my place until I went into business. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting story. And something really, because something that really caught me now and something that I want to ask is, because if you look at economies of really successful nations, 
is because mm-hmm. they 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 promote entrepreneurship. People start companies. You have an idea. Correct. You, so that's like even most of the basis of what's happening in places like Silicon Valley. Okay, now mm-hmm. when you look at Africa, when you look at Africa, because you look at Africa and the way entrepreneurship is discouraged. Like when I, because I said I wanted to be an entrepreneur to, to my dad a certain time when I was young and he was like, <laughs> that was risky. I know you, you should, you should, you should choose something safe. Do you think mm-hmm. it's the history of poverty that there's so much poverty? So people want to try to find like a very secure position, like get a job, you know, get a paying job because they don't want their kids to be poor because they were poor. So that's why they discourage entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Every parent loves their child. And even when it doesn't, when I've seen kids at loggerheads, and it's not only an African thing, you go to the Indian community, you see this it's from here in the US, we call them immigrant communities. You see that as a common thread uh, um, in certain societies where there's been a lot of struggle and strife. And the reason you nailed it on the head, Kelvin, it's because as a parent, as any parent, you want to have some kind of security blanket for your child. You don't want your child to suffer. If your child comes and says, I want to be an artist, you start panicking. And this is not even only an African thing. Even here in the U.S., if your child just comes and says, oh, I want to be a model, parents start panicking because they know it's not an easy road. And what they're worried about is how is my child going to survive that that environment and thrive? because not too many people are able to rise to the top, right? We hear the great story. So it's a natural um, instinct that a parent will want to protect their child. That's where it gets even more challenging now for the child or whether you're an adult, and I say child in the context of a parent-child relationship, to dig deep as to the drive that's pushing you and to find the right tribe, one of the things that when I coach, even for myself, one of the things I, I, I made a mistake with and I struggled a lot was trying to figure this journey out on my own. It's double hard to do it on your own. You need a tribe. And what do I mean by tribe? Not in the African tribal sense. A tribe is where is a community of people that are in that space that will support you in your toughest moments. Your family may not be that right person. Your family may just be there to talk you out of it, even if they're like, okay, go try that your entrepreneurship thing and you're going to fall. It's normal. It's part of the journey. You're supposed to fall. That is entrepreneurship. If you don't fail, you can't pivot. You have to be able to fail, fail, pivot, adjust till you get it right. That's part of the journey. But then when you're around the wrong People and wrong, not that they don't love you, but people that don't understand this. The first time you fall, they'll be like, didn't I tell you? You see, they will start with the didn't I tell you? And you would second guess yourself over and over. I mean, people have even given up at that point. That's why you need that tribe. You need that group, that community of people to say, oh my gosh, I had this situation. I, I made this mistake or, you know, I, I had this happen and they will cheer you on. They'll give you the encouragement to take that next step. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've failed or fallen or made a mistake. And I've been at the time when it was solo, it was all me. It was go back and get a job, you know, and I did do that actually. At some point I got so scared. I was like, you know what? I am a good employee too. I can rise up the corporate ladder because that's what everybody in my family is comfortable with. They're all great. They do very well in structured environments. They have great jobs, not just me. I mean, really good jobs. So it's very accomplished in that regard. So for everybody, it's like you could climb and rise to the top of a corporate ladder, but you do it at some point, you realize no, this is still not it. So I, I re- you really nailed it. I think it's that fear and it does come from a good place. It's just not the right or healthiest mindset for an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Well, I, I think I will still like come back to entrepreneurship, but like I want to go back to your magazine that you talked about, the African vibes. What kind of mm-hmm. messages and stories are, are, you, are you people telling? Yes. So on African vibes, the key thing is we are, we're working toward balancing the narrative. That means we highlight 
progress. We highlight development. We do touch on pertinent issues, but when we do it, it's usually to highlight the resilience of Africans, right? Whether it's the NSARS, we would want to highlight the youth movement. We want to highlight the fact that certain things are not happening. Um, so we, we try to tell Africa's a story from that narrative, from that lens. Um, and in, in the next year, we're going to take that even further to make it even more actionable where we can now say, okay, Let's look at how can we participate more actively um, in uh, this great story that is Africa's rising, as I would as I would call it. But yes, our angle, you would hardly see us overemphasize war or strife. And again, it doesn't mean that those things are not important or urgent. It's not because of that. It's because we do feel that there's enough uh, media attention on that and we need to balance that narrative to keep it hopeful otherwise it can become pretty bleak and discouraging if that's the only narrative that you're hearing yeah yeah so the, I'm, I'm trying to get because your mind frame what well, be, before mm. you started before you started african vibes because like what, what you thought about was it like this lack of you felt this lack of contents that just um, portrayed what africa really is or just showed one side of what Africa is. What was that your mind frame at, at that time? Yes, I wanted to see my African heroes. I wanted to see the top doctors that were Africans. I wanted to see people with Fortune 500 type companies that were Africans. I wanted their story. I wanted people like me. I wanted to see people like me. I wanted to see their story. I wanted to see how they did it. Um, I wanted to see people that were doing well in Africa. I wanted to know are opportunities opening up in Africa? Some African governments properly addressing issues. They can be all bad and evil. What are they doing that's right? I wanted to see that. And I wanted to focus on that because when you're in the diaspora um, or like here in the U.S., whether you're you know, naturalized, meaning you become a citizen, citizen or not, you're always still perceived as an outsider, and then you look at your country, you're still sort of an outsider because once you move, you become somebody else and you're caught in this middle, but your heart doesn't leave that place. And the agony is how can I make it better? But to even begin that journey, you need hope because you've left a place that seemed so discouraging and you're thinking, okay, it just seems you would see us in circles. We're sitting or talking and the problem just seems so big. All oh, these corrupt governments, we could, if we, we want to build schools, but how can we build it with all these corruption? And that's where the, the story always ends. My issue was that cannot be it. That just cannot be the only story. What if we focus on the story that, okay, wow, did you know that, you know, maybe these three new sectors have opened in Ghana or in Nigeria or like the year of the returnee, that things are happening, that we can find a place to jump in and participate to make a difference instead of only looking too long at the doors that are shutting or the conflict or the corruption or the strife. I wanted that other story. And I felt there were probably other people like me that kind of needed this balanced narrative. Yeah. Now, in terms of entrepreneurship in Africa, because mm-hmm. I, I've, I've thought about things like, okay, maybe it's not for, because I, I, I know that people have ideas. People have, mm-hmm. people have, um, the drive to want to build, to make things, to bring things to life. But, 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 but these things, most times they don't really see the light of the day because of funding. Do you, do you feel, because if you compare, I think you are in the US currently, if you yes. compare, if you compare the maybe investor, the, the, like, People, people could get funding from a lot of investors in the US if they maybe you want to start a company like the culture in Silicon Valley, but like here in Africa, people really kind of give out their money and say, take, invest in this, like, like take my money to start this company or all those kind of um, VC funding and all those things. Do you think that's like a big barrier here in Africa? So I would break this twofold. I would say, first of all, that is actually changing faster than it seems. And I say this because if you look at, um, not only in South Africa, some of these things started picking up in uh, Nigeria. Africa is the new frontier. The continent has the youngest youth population in the world. And Africans are incredibly talented and smart people. They just don't have opportunity. And you, you, you only need to look at any country that Africans have migrated to that have allowed them 
the slightest opportunity to see how they've thrived. Now, for Africans on the continent, there are many Africans in tech that are being supported through venture venture capitalists. Um, you, you start you start seeing tech giants like Facebook taking interests. I think they came in Nigeria. You see Google um, doing uh, the whole uh, balloons thing in Kenya to help make um, internet more accessible. This is not by accident or by chance. It's because this the value of Africans is recognized, not only as a, a potential massive new market, but as a group of people that can bring a lot to the table. Now, is it tougher for a lot of Africans because they lack the direct uh, support or they're in countries that do not encourage enterprise uh, easily? Absolutely. But I would say that's changing because more and more venture capitalist companies are opening to make this more possible. But I'm going to add this. Information right now is more, it has been democratized. And what do I mean by that? All you need is internet access to be able to educate yourself and be innovative, right? That is a drastically reduced barrier to entry. So now with tools like, with sites like Khan Academy that teach you, you have, um, and I can't remember some of them off the top of my head, but you have all these coding sites that are yeah. offering those the training for free mind you yeah. and then you have youtube yeah. and all of that you can actually self-educate and do what a lot of companies that seem to have just made it big overnight even here in the u.s they had to do a proof of concept they had to prove that there was a market for what they were doing you could literally actually do a lot of that and this would primarily be mostly in the tech space you can really get in there as an African in Africa and thrive. And the good news is there are actually Africans building apps and doing all these great things. Today, there's actually a great site, appsafrica.com, that does awards to recognize this. And we need more of that. But do we have enough? Absolutely not. So to your point, yes, we do need more dollars coming in and dollars because that's where I am. But we need more, more uh, capital. Uh, from a venture perspective coming up, we need more incubators uh, to encourage entre entrepreneurship. We need more mentorship. Absolutely. Because again, I would say I would bet on Africa. That is the new frontier. I actually have initiatives that I plan to start there because I see it as the new frontier. Um, and our time, it, it is our time. It's the time for the continent. Um, and the youth need to be encouraged to participate. Yeah. Now, what you said is really interesting because for me, I, I think what, one of the things I've been doing in the past month is to brainstorm because I've been brainstorming with a lot of guys that are talking mm -hmm. about how do we mass educate people, you know, mm -hmm. at a broad scale with the internet, like just like the conversation we are having now and what you say you are doing with African vibes. Like what if we get some of the smartest people in Africa and be talking to them, you know, interview them and there's a platform where you could where we, where we pick pick their brains and we get to share it with almost everybody but you see the problem is because w w when you talk about africa you, we we still feel like i know a, a large percentage of people are online but all of mm -hmm. the people who could not afford smartphones who are not online yet i think mm -hmm. that was like a big barrier when i because i, I i've been talking about it because I, I've, I've been trying to brainstorm how do we reach these people who are not online how do mm -hmm. we bring them online? Because for me, if you want to start any company in Nigeria, maybe I'm, let me use Nigeria as an example. Mm -hmm. And you want to like involve people, you now talk about, okay, how do we bring people online to be able to use what, 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 what we have? So now that is, that's definitely great, but finish your thoughts. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You could go on. Don't worry. No, no, that is a great consideration. How do we, now there's increasing access to, um, to the internet in Africa, right? But not nearly, not nearly, um, enough. Um, and then you have a, a place like Nigeria. Now I'm going to zero in on Nigeria because I think Nigeria is one of those, um, Nigeria has a very special role. And I don't even know that the Nigerian government, and I would want to believe that Nigerian government understands this. Nigeria is the most populated country on the continent, has one of the most smartest people. Um, and it has a lot of weight 
as a country. And in that respect, Nigeria is a key leader in advancing the continent. That's why it's quite disappointing when we see things like the SARS uh, uh, fiasco that happened where they were killing innocents uh, and, and then denying it. Uh, that was mm-hmm. quite disturbing because Nigeria needs to be held in a higher standard as a leader, uh, not only in West Africa, but for the continent. Now, when you talk about accessibility to internet and technology, because you're correct. It is one of the fastest ways to educate and enlighten people for them to be able to, to reach their potential. My thought there is it's going to take time, but we don't need to wait uh, for that. Um, it doesn't, not all education, well, virtual, like I'm sitting here in the US and here I am talking to you and you're in Nigeria, right? That's the time we live in, which is incredible. I don't think people pause long enough to really process what this is, what this means and the doors that this opens. However, we need, I don't know how familiar I are with TED Talks, but we need more of the TED Talks like envi- yeah. um, environments within yeah. communities inside of uh, uh, getting in those communities and encouraging that kind of participation. Um, I feel when you start with schools, uh, going into universities and we start doing that kind of, uh, where universities themselves start creating these kinds of programs and encouraging participation, not only of people that are in your universities, but of the community at large, it becomes a community initiative. You slowly start touching people, not only those that have access to technology, but those that will be transformed by the opportunities that are available to them to transform their own future. Let me give you an example, which was not even internet related. I don't know if, um, and I, I, what, I can't remember the guy's name um, uh, off the top of my head, but they made a movie about him, uh, the boy who harnessed the wind. And this is a young man. I don't know if you've heard of uh, um, his his story, Uh, but what happened was he was in the village. They were going through a drought in East Africa. It is a a true um, story. And they were losing crops. They were really struggling and they were not getting adequate government support. His parents had lost everything. They had to pull him out of school because they could not afford to keep him there. This young man um, was sneaking into school to read how to build a windmill. He read a book and he solved the problem. He built a windmill that really saved uh, uh, the situation for his uh, parents and the village at large. Now, I love this story because this guy didn't have access to the internet. The internet makes these kinds of things. We should be hearing these kinds of stories more and more in Africa, but we're not. Mm -hmm. This guy read a book and solved a problem. I think personally, my opinion is not that the information is not there or that, you know, I think while it is true that it's challenging to get information in some cases, I think one of the biggest gaps that we have is a mindset issue. It's reframing. I think that's why what I call a colonial hangover. We spent, when I say we, I mean Africans, we've been told even in different parts of the world that we're less than, right? We, we, we cannot solve problems for ourselves. And we've bought into, if you tell somebody long enough that they're no good, at some point they start believing it, right? If they're not getting any other alternative message to affirm something that's true other than. And so we've been left to see ourselves as victims and we've been left to operate from somebody else has to come solve it. If the government just gets better, then it would all be okay. If the French or the British stop robbing us, then it would be all okay. Now, I'm not absolving any of these people of any responsibility, but what I'm saying is we need to change the question to what can I do? How can I contribute? If you're in a village and things are not going well, how can you help organize for the village to work together to solve that problem, right? It really kills my spirit when I look at a village, there are no roads, and there are people from that village that do well. And trust me, I've participated in community uh, programs for, for villages in Cameroon, and I struggle with just the mindset challenge even here in the U.S. Um, and the kinds of things that people were where they would spend more time squabbling than Let's put our heads together and find solutions. And you come up with a, say, hey, let's do this great project. And because it didn't come from the right person and all the pettiness. So we get caught up in the pettiness, in blame. 
we, we haven't learned how to say, I could do this thing. It would benefit my neighbor. It may not benefit me or my family. But if it benefits my neighbor or the neighbor 10 houses down, that means we've all won, right? So I feel like we have a fundamental mindset issue. And it's not because I don't think that's who we are. Because when you look deep down at how our culture is, I think the African culture is naturally supposed to be a community, a culture of community of my brother's keeper. But then when the colonial uh, people came, they introduced this divide and conquer, put brother against brother. They created these divisions, which were overemphasized through tribalism, right? That has now become our story. That's the story we absolutely have to reject and change. For us to do that, we have to start not just with the education of the possibilities of what people can do. We have to start with mindset. We have to start changing this victimhood. Again, it's, and I know people get angry sometimes when I say that, but I personally have lived my life telling myself I'm not, not a victim. So I don't go to my work and somebody's mean to me and trust me, I've encountered racism and all that and say, oh, I can't do this because somebody's racist or no, I'll walk around you. I'll go through the wall, but I will not be held back just because of somebody's small mindset or limited mindset. I refuse to be held back. Now, of course, I may not be able to go a certain distance or it may take me longer or make it harder, but I'm going to try all the same. What I refuse to do is to accept that this is it for me and blame everybody. Oh my gosh, if the government would only do this. I just reject that kind of thinking. And that's what I mean by we have to get past the colonial hangover because we're still living in the shadows of our colonial past. Yeah. One, one, one of the problems now you brought up about the, the colonial hangover is education. Um, we, yes. Education, which is a really big problem. But for people like you and a lot of Africans who are really, you know, did so many great things is, is because they were educated but because mm-hmm. I, 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 record, I recorded a podcast yesterday with someone and we, we were trying to brainstorm on this issue too about education so mm-hmm. just for a small story a small story let me tell you I, I stay in this, this capital um, Nigerian capital FCT Abuja I don't know if you know that so yeah. I came to Lagos I just, I, I came to Lagos. So it actually is my first time in Lagos. It, I, I've, I've stayed in Abuja and Ocean State my whole life. So, mm-hmm. but, so I was, I, you know, I was in my Uber and the guy was driving around. I, I was seeing so many fine places. And then we came to a certain place. I was seeing people living, people building houses in the middle of the river. They, they had small, um, these sticks on the ground for them to be able to commute and to work and all these things. And I could see other slums by other sides of the road. And this is just, mm-hmm. I just, I just passed like big mansions, like minutes mm-hmm. ago. And I mm-hmm. saw slums everywhere. And I, I was, I, I wanted to ask my driver, do people really live here? Like these were really dirty places. So, mm-hmm. and, and now I, I, I now talked about how could we educate these people? Because these people, they are, they, are, they are going to grow up to, to continue this cycle of what we have if we don't educate them. So my, my, I, I was thinking about how, how do we educate these people now so that we could start breaking this cycle? Because if we don't educate this set of people who live in these places, like give them free education so that tomorrow they, they could leave these slums they are in. But we now thought about the fact that Education is not even the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is could be poverty. And how do people, us citizens, or maybe a startup solve educational problems at a broad scale, like in a country scale, that it has to be like the government? So, and, and now you brought up, you also brought up the government. So I, I've been thinking about that too, because in terms of Africa, how do you solve this issue? Because part of the colonial hangover is just because People are not very educated. I know, I know I might be talking now in, because I know it's just, I don't know whether it's a large percent of the popul- population that suffer this problem uh, I'm, I'm talking about, but like, how do we actually solve education for people? You've brought a very, very valid and you've pointed out a few key things. So we'll start with the underlying poverty. How do you, first of all, have somebody to see hope when they're poor? 
Now, the reason I said for me, it all starts with mindset, right? And I've done this coaching, as a matter of fact, it's an exercise I actually did recently with my team. Because for the for me to have a team to that and my team is diverse. I have members from my team in Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Philippines. So I have mm. people in different parts of the world, right? There's the fundamental thing that has to first be addressed is you have to first believe that abundance is possible, right? But how do you even begin to believe abundance is possible when you're surrounded by so much strife, right? One of the things uh, I remember some time ago, I had spoken to my mom. My mom did well, uh, you know, while in Cameroon and then we came here. She was a TV figure, so she did well. But then coming here in the U.S., I realized there were times when she would sabotage herself. We would want to push her to do something. And the thing I love about my mom is you could actually sit with her and say, okay, let's talk about this thing. What? Because she'd studied psychology too. So what do you think is really happening here? And my mom grew up poor, right? And one day my mom said, you know, I think the challenge I'm having is the fear of success. I'm scared that what if I don't know that I can handle success, right? And I think we don't, it may seem like, oh, come on. I mean, give me the lottery. I think I'll be fine. We don't realize people are afraid of success as well. Then there's also the the upbringing that villainizes people that have wealth. They're, they're thieves. They're, so we have all these mindset things that are even the beginning thing of where you're living in this place. But to even see yourself outside of it, you would have to get past the, tr- the conditioning that you've had, the conditioning that is not possible for you, the condition that to be rich, you may, if you're a Christian, for some people, it's like, oh, it means you've gone to the side of the devil. There are all these things that you don't even see that hold people in a cage. Can somebody in a place like the place you saw lift themselves out of poverty? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially all they need is, is internet connection, some training, how to hustle, and they have that hustle spirit, they can but then they don't even know that they can, right? And if you try to open your minds and tell them they'll have to get past limiting beliefs, they would have to get past conditioning, they'll have to get past a lot of things. That's why I feel the fundamental thing is, first of all, mindset. People have to, first of all, believe that your lives can be better. They have to believe that they have the capacity to change their future. I don't think what you saw as slums in, in uh, Nigeria where you would see a wealthy neighborhood and you see something like that is, is it's uh, an isolated situation. You see it in Cameroon, you see in different parts of Africa because the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And in between, it's not that there's not possibility. It's just that the wealthy have educated their children. The children are more exposed. They're able to see, they grew up seeing it. So now they know it's possible, right? The poor, on the other hand, they grew up not seeing it. They end up probably repeating what your parents have gone through. And the more you live in this, the more you attract that negativity and that energy. And that's where you you stay would require one person to try to break the cycle before uh, that that starts getting better. But how do you fix a problem like that at scale? Now, personally, I can't say I can fix it, but I feel the diaspora has a key role and a key responsibility to play in this. Because we've seen what better can be, and better not necessarily in everything. The fact that um, America may have tight roads doesn't mean that it's better in every respect than you know people that may live in a poor community but have love and happiness. So you can't just transport everything and take it over. However, we've seen the power of possibility as entrepreneurs, especially. I don't care whether it's in Africa, in the United States, or whatever country, UK, wherever we are. We owe it, we owe it back to the continent to find ways to create opportunities for those that are the least advantaged in those communities because those are the people that will change the continent for the better and change the world. So we owe it. So personally, I I think Akon actually started um, a a big conversation. It was controversial. You know, people were mad at him and he was speaking to the African-American community here to say, okay, it's bad there. Stop complaining. Come to Africa. Whatever you're doing there, do it in Africa, right? From your start it there because you have a better chance of building it up. And the interesting thing is a lot of African-Americans only know the negative. They only know the war and the security issues and they're scared. It's up to us not to educate them that 
these are opportunities. Now, why do I digress back to the diaspora? It's because for a community like that to be to evolve, yes, they need education. But you can go enroll all your kids in a school. Yeah, maybe it would open the kids' mindset. But are there not people who've gone to school in Nigeria that have ended up with no jobs? You see what I mean? So it's not enough to say, I'm going to give you an education. What I feel personally, and again, this is because I felt I was one of those people that the education I got as a child in Cameroon was the wrong kind of education. Because the Cameroon doesn't, at the time, they would not teach you entrepreneurship or even introduce it to you. We need to start introducing problem solving and entrepreneurship. How do you use, how to look around you and say, oh my gosh, the roads are terrible. What is the business opportunity I can pull out of here? And how can I take that business opportunity from ground zero to make it a, a, a business that can create jobs for other people within my community? That's what we need to introduce. Again, it goes back to for us to get there, we need to first deal with the underlying mindset issue. Years ago, um, as I was starting this African Vice thing, I remember I started investing in microfinancing. There was, uh, I think at the time it was Kiva because my, there, I have initiatives that I, I'm interested in. There are ones that I'm like, yep, this is a great initiative, but it's not where I would put my money. And I remember one of the ladies wrote to me from, I can't remember if it was Kenya. And what she was excited about was to tell me that the money I sent for that micro loan, helped her buy. She was making peanut butter or something, if I remember correctly. She had bought a fridge where she could now store the, the, the stuff she was creating more. She had ended up employing her husband and a few other people because she was able to produce more. A little tiny loan, I said, helped this woman give other people jobs, sponsor her kids' uh, education. That is the kind, those are the kind, these people don't want handouts. They just want us to teach them how to get out of this situation that they're in. So I agree with you that it's education, but not in the traditional sense. I think it's a mindset change and giving people tangible tools and skills to become problem solvers or entrepreneurial. Of course, not everybody can be an entrepreneur, but I think those are the people that change the world. Yeah, I, I think you, you brought up something really interesting. And I know this is something you might be interested in talking about, like building um, itself self-sufficient continent, uh, how, how we could build self-sufficiency in the continent. Because I, I've thought about it in the sense that we, we rely on, we, we rely on almost everything yes. from the West. You get like, most of us are not producers as mm-hmm. in most, most countries are not really producers. I think that's because as you, as you brought up, we, we are not taught how to solve problems, how to think for ourselves. Mm-hmm. How to really sit down and 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 diagnose issues that okay we could we could solve this thing we don't have to wait like solar energy for example do we have people in because I I I did my research I did my undergraduate research in um in in, in solar cells so we mm-hmm. we thought about how we could use cheap dyes cheap dyes that we could get around anywhere. We mm-hmm. could use those ones to, to build solar cells so we could sell them because we don't have to rely on expensive um, silicon solar cells. So things like that. How do we get people to start thinking about, you know, just looking around in the environment, thinking think about solving problems that we too c- could be producers? And, and, and I think that's really interesting when, when, when you think about the fact that we, we are not producers at like any major scale at all. The U.S. or other countries exports all their stuff to us. China, all these countries, they make, they yes. produce, they sell ideas to us, they sell products to us, they sell entertainment to us. So I, I still don't know how we could conquer that small barrier. So, and that's a big question because for us to conquer something as major as that, that's where the challenges of the role the government has to play in it comes into play, right? So we have to set, we have to break down impact because sometimes when we start thinking about it from that skill, then it starts feeling like it's a defeating idea. We know what we have to do, but then when you start realizing, okay, but you're stuck with the government at your, that whether the government does what's right or wrong, all of a sudden that decision that that government is making changes the dynamic for the worst or for the better, right? We can still do make change at the scale where we control the variables. 
so right now, African countries, we're in the zone of raw materials. Everybody comes to us with the raw materials. They take it, they convert it, they buy cocoa, come back and sell us their chocolate. And then we, we, we buy, which is crazy. Why are we not making the chocolate? You know, we make the cocoa. Um, so we, 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 but then if you go look at some of these things, we, we have uh, knees on our neck. So I'm going to use the, the George Floyd analogy. We have, a knee, we have knees on our neck from some archaic thievery in the name of contracts that have bound us. My hope, my, I'm hopeful because I see things like the Africa Free Trade Agreement, things like that are moves in the right direction. Um, seeing that, you know, some countries are beginning to stand up and saying, nope, you're not going to come here and treat us a certain way. Seeing that we're moving towards, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm more of a pan-Africanist. Um, and I believe that we're stronger when we operate together than when we try to deal with things as individual countries. If you're going to go negotiate with China and you're going as a small little, you know, Cameroon, that's a, even Nigeria, that is the most populated country. China is a huge guy with a lot of muscle, you know. Yeah. So you're definitely at a disadvantage. But if you stand with other African countries under the same kind of negotiation, you're, 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 you've immediately adjusted your position, right? And if you also come from a position that you know your value, because sometimes we negotiate as, as if we don't know who we are or what we have. We are the richest continent. And yet we have the poorest population. Doesn't make any sense, right? So know what you have. We have wealth. But those are things that then you're thinking, okay, wow, okay, yes, we think the government should do this. Of course, there are things that we don't know. We don't know how their hands are tied and the challenges that they have to deal with that may force them to take certain decisions that we hate. So my thing is, there are things I think need to be done that I look at and I'm like, okay, is it within my sphere of influence? No. Okay. I think that should be done, not within my self-influence. So I'll come back down using my space, like, for example, digital marketing. Can I engage or, or get into an arrangement where I can educate Africans of low means to participate in a digital economy by showing them what they need to learn, training them, and possibly even employing them, but encourage making them more employable? Now that I can control. It's information driven. It doesn't require much. It just requires internet and a computer, lower barrier to entry, right? Mm. That's something that I can control. So that's how I start looking at it as if we start looking at what can we do versus the government first has to fix this. If I know that I can hire someone from Kenya or Nigeria and train them in a certain way and then give them a job. By me giving them a job, they may be able now to send their kids to better schools. They can better their life and effect they're bettering their community. In a way, I'm already beginning to change that narrative and that dynamic. You see what I mean? And if more of us do this, more of us start looking within our area of expertise, whether it's in solar energy and say, okay, I want to start my own little, and I'm using this as an example from the one you gave. I want to start a more um, realistic and uh, um, affordable um, uh, solar energy with solar panels or whatever it was, right? I'm not terribly familiar with all the tools that go into yeah. building uh, solar panels. Mm. We know electricity is a challenge in Nigeria. It's a challenge in the region, pretty much. It's not affordable. It's unreliable. We know all of that, right? Now, of course, let's say, okay, the government doesn't care that you do that. You know, you just need to pay your taxes. So they're not going to stop you from doing that, right? Yeah, yeah. So now you have something tangible. Yes, you may need a little bit of funding, but that's where creativity comes in. And that's why I say we kind of need to start thinking outside the box. Do you necessarily need someone now to come and give you a lot of money for you to, to make that work? Not necessarily. If you're a creative person, you can actually secure clients and raise one from your potential clients prior to even creating your product. There are ways right now in Silicon Valley, if you're meeting venture capitalists and just saying, Oh, give me all this money. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. Prove to me that you have a market and for you to prove it, you actually have to go and sell stuff right before people would be willing to, um, to invest in you. So when you start thinking about, um, when you start thinking about these things in those terms, you realize that, Yes, there are many. I mean, Africa is is littered with opportunity, like littered. Some you would meet roadblocks as far as the government and regulations and corruption is concerned. 
Some you can actually do without being limited and constrained by those. The questions we should be asking then is, what can we change that will not require us to encounter the typical roadblocks that we know we're already going to encounter, right? What can we change and how can we bring our, our, ourselves work, work better together? And as more and more Africans start working together, they have a stronger voice together than as individuals. At some point, you'll be able to have a community of entrepreneurs being able to approach a government and say, here's what we need to, to do, move this needle. Uh, I'm sure Dangote can get uh, the government to do a lot of things, you see. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. you don't necessarily need to negotiate with the government. You might want to just negotiate with the people that have a lot of influence that the government will have no other choice but to listen to people that can appreciate uh, this kind of direction. But it all starts with us, with us saying, what can I do? And if I've hit a roadblock, how can I get past that? How can I work around it to still make help with making progress? Yeah. So I, I think you, you, are, you are a really interesting person and you, you are well-spoken. And I, I like what, what you are saying. And I, and I know the people who listen would also want to reach you. So I will give you one minute to talk about anything you want to say, where people could reach you. And what you do as a person and just anything or any advice you have for people listening. Sure. Uh, thank you so much, Kelvin. Uh, for people who want to connect with me, I'm on pretty much all the key social uh, media platforms. Not everyone, um, but you can find me on Facebook. My handle is at Bell Niba, B-E-L-L-E-N-I-B-A. Um, at Bell Niba, you'll find me on uh, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, someone all those uh, places I definitely enjoy uh, having conversations about, you know, how people can lift themselves out of poverty. What I will say, though, uh, before I part is for those of your audience that are have been asking themselves, how do I, you know, find myself or build myself up or, or you know, find opportunity? If you have access to the Internet, YouTube and Google are your best friends. For the first time, you have information at your fingertips leverage them. Personally, I've learned a lot just from these for free I, without having to pay anybody a dime. Yeah, yeah. Leverage it. And don't write one of the quickest ways for you to start a business right now is freelancing. For example, if you're saying, I don't have money, I don't have resources, I don't have any of that. Maybe in sometimes in the next month or two, I might actually do a workshop on how to quick start uh, freelancing specifically for people that are based in Africa. But I think that's a quick way. But to your point, Kelvin, even I am looking at ways to be more effective with bringing more entrepreneurs together so that we can help push entrepreneurship on the continent. And that is a big question that we all need to be not only asking, but actually taking tangible action towards solving. Yeah, that, that was really interesting. Thanks for your thoughts. But one, one question I like to ask everyone before they leave is what is the meaning of life or what gives your life meaning? Wow. <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get my joy in transforming people's lives. I get my, my joy when I am able to help people see their potential, see that on, uncover people's potential. And when, what I mean by that is when I sit with, whether it's a client or someone I'm coaching, and I'm helping blast off their limiting beliefs that frees them to be able to go and do the things that they were so afraid and thought they was worth not possible. That gives me the biggest amount of fulfillment. And I think maybe the day I die, my biggest joy would have been uh, my hope that I was able to have that kind of impact on the continent. I was able to create opportunity and help large communities to be able to put food on the table and have opportunities that they may never have even thought possible. So I know that's a long-winded mm. answer, but for me, my heart always goes right back to the continent and having impact yeah. and giving people opportunity. Yeah. yeah, I think that was a well put well put um, talk and and I really appreciate you for this enlightening conversation and for coming on the podcast too. Thank you, Kelvin. My pleasure. Yeah. Hello, thanks for listening to the end and don't forget to share, like, subscribe. Also contact me on Instagram or Twitter at Hinted Nero. And if you have any questions, comment or concerns. That's it for me this week. Now to then, they're curious.